Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down now. No, now, like right now. Okay. Let's start this fucking show. <laughs> Zoom doesn't like black people. It does not. It's racist like Facebook. It's racist we know. Facebook. Fucking. And we need a black folks filter, sound filter on Zoom. <laughs> we so do <laughs> From the Coast Salish land of Seattle, we're By the Sound, your community-invested podcast. I'm Sarah Mays, speaking this week with Aisha Hauser. On this episode, we're talking to Jalen Scott of the Lavender Rights Project. But first, we discuss the future of the Supreme Court and the streaming documentary, Class Action Park. This is By the Sound. So how you doing? Well, the world is still fucking shit, and we have a garbage death cult government. That's I can't call them anything else but a garbage death cult fucking government. But this thing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course it's shitty she died, and Homegirl was 87, and we, we can't keep making ride or die on one person, like a Barack Obama and, and now Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, we each have to fucking move into doing what we need to fucking cancel Christmas. We all need to stop buying shit, me included, whatever national strike we need to do. We need to do it. The Biden stickers have been hilarious. Uh, what is it? Settle for Biden is the website, which is hilarious. And, and one of the bumper stickers is fine Biden, but this is bullshit. But maybe the teeny weeny teeny silver lining of him is that it's clear he's not going to fucking save us. Like, it's not, it's about like, okay, let's just get him in to stop this garbage death cult government, this version, right? So how am I doing? I'm, I'm trying not to just give in to despair um, and rather feel determined. And I got a new job since the spring. I am now part of a lead team of three people leading the church of the larger fellowship And we have 1,200 people who are um, incarcerated Unitarian Universalists, many in the LGBT community who feel loved and affirmed through our ministry. Um, We have a pen pal program. Um, We, you know, let people know they're loved and affirmed and no matter where they are, even if they are incarcerated. So that was a lot. How are you, Sarah? (laughs) I could go on and on. Yeah. um, Well, as I've had... Uh, a very emotional weekend, and I I admired Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I wouldn't describe myself as being a part of the cult ever. I I just wanted her to, um, you know, I, a lot of us have been thinking about how long she would be able to survive cancer, and I, you know, like many, uh, had been hoping she could at least uh, survive and until uh, January. Um, so. To, you know, less than 48 hours ago now, um, we learned of, of her passing, and I was sad for her loss, but also sad for sort of the, lo- the loss of hope. I, I don't feel much hope right now, and the most likely outcome is that we will have a 6-3 to three conservative Supreme Court, like, very soon. And it took... 40 years for Republicans to get to this point where they can realize their project of remaking this one of three branches of government. It could take 40 years for liberals to take it back. We could uh, lose abortion abortion rights. We could um, lose transgender rights. Uh, We could lose gay marriage. We could lose Obamacare. Voting rights cases and immigration cases uh, could turn out even worse than they have in recent years. There is a lot at stake here, and there's very little that we can do, even if even if we vote. And that's super important because having control of the administrative state uh, and and hopefully flipping the Senate to uh, have control of the lawmaking body is all important. But in this country, the Supreme Court is the last word, and if it's 6-3 conservatives, which it's probably going to be, really awesome laws could be passed by Congress and then just overturned. I think we're fucked, and that brings out my anger. I'm, I'm angry, not, not just at Mitch McConnell and, and the Republicans for being hypocrites and, and being evil 
fundamentally. Like I expect them to be that way. That's why, you know, I organize so much of my life against uh, fighting against them. Um, but I am angry at leftists who spent 2016 campaigning against Hillary Clinton, who were so eager to show that their shit smelled sweeter than the Democratic Party ticket, which could have given us by now a six to three liberal Supreme Court. I'm angry at people who didn't vote. I'm angry at people who voted for third party candidates. Um, and, and it's not that I don't have progressive values. I have some radical fucking values, okay? I want to abolish real estate. I want to nationalize corporations. I want a Green New Deal and universal health care, and I want to get rid of borders. I want to get rid of most policing. I want to get rid of most jails, okay? Uh-huh. <clears throat> most of that isn't close to Hillary Clinton's agenda, but I fucking campaigned for her because I didn't want to live in America with a six to three Supreme Court. And a lot of the resistance to Democratic tickets from Al Gore, you know, who wasn't deemed to be green enough, to Hillary Clinton, who wasn't thought to be progressive enough, is relies on this magical thinking that by electing Republicans instead of Democrats, the Democratic Party will get pulled to the left. And I think there is a time to pressure the party. If Joe Biden wins and the increasingly unlikely scenario of, of Trump leaving office peacefully occurs, um, I think that next year is going to be a really good time to pressure the Democratic Party to move left, to do things like get a Green New Deal, universal health care, and uh, upend law enforcement among other things. But we can't do any of that, and we can't start to rebuild a, a responsible, humanitarian, just judicial branch un- unless we retake the White House and the Senate. And yeah, I'm just, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death on Friday, um, I was just crushed. Well, here, here's the thing. We can't, we, we can't rely on voting. We, or we have to do it. We have to do it. And we're voting for Biden. I mean, there, to me, this is the first election in my since I could vote over 21 years ago that it is perfectly acceptable to say he's not the other guy like that. Every other election annoyed the shit out of me. Like we have to vote for something here. Nope. We have to stop the fucking hemorrhaging. But here's the other thing. We need to flip the Senate in the House because guess what? Brett fucking Kavanaugh needs to be impeached. It's bullshit to think we need to keep these nine people like there needs to be a fundamental restructuring. What we can't do any, what is off the table anymore is thinking that any kind of way that we were operating is going to continue. Even if Biden wins, I'm not actually as worried about a 6-3 majority at all, because if we're going to stay with, you know, it, or, or the way this government is, it, I mean, it's always been stacked. It's always been for white supremacy and oppression and holding up extractive capitalism. So the 6-3 the thing is a product of maintaining that system. Kavanaugh needs to be fucking impeached. The dude lied under oath. They have evidence he lied under oath. So the first thing the fucking Senate should do is impeach his fucking ass. Th- there needs to be like a major reckoning that is, you know, going to be scary. And yet what choice do we have? Otherwise, we're, we're living in a fascist government and it's just going to get worse. So yes to everything you're saying. And it's much, much, much bigger than that we have to try we have to try um that's how i feel <laughs> am i i'm like screaming this whole show yikes well it's, it's 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 a scary time the next what six or seven weeks um this is this is a scary time it's uh, you know hold on to your butts hey y'all it's sarah Part of the original idea behind this podcast was to create a community-building tool that would bring our listeners together through our Facebook group and meetups throughout Seattle. Less than two weeks after our first IRL meetup in February, community spread of COVID-19 upended all of our plans. Here, I would like to let our supporters and future supporters know that we are planning a Zoom meetup as well as other online community events. 
Another note for our Patreon subscribers is that the full, unedited, sprawling conversation that Aisha and I just had has been posted to our Patreon page. It's there for any supporter who wants to hear us blabber for 30 minutes about our current national nightmare. Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for our listeners? Ah, glad you asked. It means that in addition to hearing our conversations about local issues and interviews with our most interesting Seattle-area neighbors, fans of the show can join our listener community online by supporting the podcast on Patreon. Doing so will unlock access to our private Facebook group. What are we posting in the Facebook group? (laughs) Well, in addition to exclusive previews about what we'll be discussing on the show, we offer a curated stream of the best and most provocative local news stories each day. That's dope. How much will it cost to join? Our online community membership is available to all patrons starting at $5 per month. How else can fans of the show invest in this community? Our supporters on Patreon, who contribute $10 or more per month, will receive exclusive invitations to buy the sound meetups at Seattle-area coffee shops, bars, and parks, where they could meet by the sound co-hosts, guests, and other local fans of the show. Sweet. Where should listeners go to donate? They can visit bythesound.net and click on the donate button. That's bythesound.net. Or go directly to patreon.com slash bythesound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bythesound. Next up on the podcast is a conversation about Class Action Park. After that, we talk to Jalen Scott, the new executive director of the Lavender Rights Project. She spoke with us on May 28th. That was just three days after the horrific murder of George Floyd. Some of her thoughts were in direct response to that event, but are every bit as valid today. The internet connection on the call wasn't the best, but it does get better as the interview progresses. Jaylin was a phenomenal, brilliant guest, and I'm so glad you'll finally get to hear her. Thanks, guys. Aisha, I saw something... um pop up on HBO and just from the trailer I thought now this is the most jersey shit I've ever seen in my life uh other than you so I had to let you know right away um what is uh so why don't you tell us what is class action park on HBO so class class Action Park is the uh, documentary about an amusement park in New Jersey that was there in the 70s. I didn't realize uh, they actually um, didn't close until the 90s. I thought they were done in the 80s. So here's the thing you have to know about Action Park. I mean, first of all, the documentary is fucking hilarious. So you just have to watch it just for entertainment value. But it very much like captured... New Jersey in the seventies and eighties and being a kid. And the only reason why my Muslim ass self even went is my parents had a shit divorce. They hated each other. And my father (laughs) in a fuck you to my mother (laughs) took us to action park because he didn't give a shit what she thought. And how far is this from where you lived? Yeah, probably 40, 45 minutes top. So here's what, so it's basically had zero, followed no rules. Cause the guy, which I didn't know, I mean, it was actually cool watching the, um, the documentary because the guy who, uh, started it or, or created it, like didn't give a fuck about rules and teenagers ran everything. How I'm not, you know why I'm not dead? Cause I don't swim. So I wouldn't go into anything like that fucking pool, there was no, I knew I would die. I'm like, I would fucking be dead because I remember seeing that fucking pool, the wave pool where people did fucking die. Actually, I will tell you the miracle is more people didn't fucking die. So yeah. I did do that. Um, it was kind of sad hearing how many people really, but the, the, um, the one with the, um, Alp- the Alpine slide, I did that. I did the Alpine slide. Oh, I would have, I would have been dying to do that. Like. <laughs> And I might so- have died had I done it. <laughs> <laughs> and the re- and you know, part of why I didn't die, A, I was lucky I had one of those contraptions that the brakes did sort of work because I'm terrified of speed. Mm-hmm. 
So I, you know, had the brakes most of the way down. So I didn't go fast enough to go flying off. This, this is like a I, luge bobsled thing, uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, but it's, it, it's not in, it's not ice. It's cement, right? It's cement. It's bonkers. So you're sitting on this. Th- okay. So that's the Alpine slide. It's a cement, um, like, uh, uh, yeah, luge with no snow, no protection. And you're in a sled with you're, wheels, right? You're in a sled <laughs> with wheels, no helmet. No fucking like that poor kid who died would have lived with a helmet because he hit his head on rocks. Right. So the other thing that I did was the, um, the water version of that luge where you get a, I remember to this day, that rubber fucking mat, you get a rubber mat (laughs) that you sit on and then you go flying down like a a water version. It's not as, it wasn't as long, but the only reason why I did that is because I knew the water was super shallow and thankfully I did not weigh as much as I do now as a kid. So I didn't go like hitting the bottom. I don't know how anybody over like 150 didn't, they probably did bruise their, um, coccyx bones because you're only, you were going into about three feet of water. It wasn't that much water. Right. And, and, and one at the end of the slide, there was air, right? Like, Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 It's like (laughs) 10 feet of air or something. Bonkers. The whole thing was, and then, so my dad, uh, because he was divorced would go with, we would go with another family. So the, the older women would wear hijab and all of, and the other, I wasn't allowed to wear a bathing suit because once I hit 11 or 10, my mom was like, you're going to go to hell. You can't wear a bathing suit. So I had to borrow (laughs) this other family's daughter's bathing suit and my sister. And it just felt like we were doing something so like subversive fucking action park. <sighs> and it definitely. <laughs> Did you wear shoes? Cause something oh, they yeah, said yeah, yeah. was like most people weren't wearing shoes and, and the, what the cement was. Uh, uh, it, Third it, degree it, burns. Yeah. Right. Boiling hot. No, no, we wore shoes. Egyptians definitely wouldn't go barefoot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we wore flip flops and, um, we didn't have Tiva. I don't think Tivas were even, well, we didn't have any if they existed. Um, but we wore, um, basically flip-flops and brought towels and the food was disgusting. I, anybody who, li- it's like, <laughs> let me tell you, it was like a working class rite of passage. Cause I don't think like the snooty rich people, they went to like great adventure, six flags and Disney. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> flight to Orlando. Or whatever. Shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but people like us who couldn't afford that shit went to action park. Oh man. It, let me tell you something. I was laughing, crying, and it brought back so many like visceral memories of my childhood. That was like, and I wasn't even allowed to do 90. I would have, I'm like, shit. I would have loved to have been a teenager, like getting high and having too much sex. Listen to me. Having <laughs> too much sex. But I was up kept under lock and key. And so my only reason why I went to Action Park is my divorced parents and my um my uh, father who was incredibly spiteful to my mother. <laughs> so that's how I ended up. There. Well, you know, I think one of the things like just seeing everything that's going on w- w- with this 1980s uh death trap theme park is uh-huh. I was expecting there to be um, a lot more cocaine involved, and and maybe that was happening elsewhere, and so the it's not talked about, or maybe that just had penetrated. They didn't have enough money. The, that group of kids. Let me tell you something about drugs. No, I mean like the designers, because like the all, all, oh, everything is <laughs> everything is like there were no engineers involved in any of this. It was all like you know. Literally mob. on a cocktail napkin. Oh, let's just have this loop. And and if the mob, if the mob yeah. made an amusement park, and yeah. the mob did, that would be action park. <laughs> yeah, no, no engineers, no physicists. Like no, uh, the, and the ex- the they experimented on the kids who were like what ticket takers and like <laughs> snack stand operators. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll give you, we'll give you a couple bucks. If you go down this thing first, let's see what happens. Listen, $10 at the time was a lot of fucking money. The best was, this is also why you have to see this movie. The, um, the, the people who worked at action park, they, I went to high school with like all of some version of them, right. They were all all characters in my high school and the Jersey accent and just the, I have to actually watch it again. I've only seen it once, but it was priceless. and. 
if you want a taste of real, not, not Tony Soprano, I'm talking real Jersey. You yeah. have to watch class action park because it was sad that people died again. Very surprised. More didn't no joke. Like, wow. It is actually, and maybe they were and just didn't, I don't know. They're buried with Jimmy Hoffa or some shit. I don't know. I don't mean to be cavalier about death, but it was a very funny, ridiculous place. And I still have snapshots of memory of the things that I did. And thank God I was a fearful kid who couldn't swim because I think I'd be dead. So yay for anxiety. As for Jersey culture, something I loved is, you know, like the, the enthusiasts about it were, you know, filthy as fuck, but also the, um, the 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 opponents of the park were filthy as fuck <laughs> now they filthy. talked about the the management and the ownership and uh it was just like there's no proper society involved in any of this from any angle <laughs> not even a little bit and nobody's even pretending that's what i love about you it's just gritty it's like mm-hmm. fuck you you killed my kid fuck you i loved it fuck you everybody was basically fuck you go fuck yourself <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it was a lot of fun to watch and uh everyone i've recommended it to um has has also enjoyed it um so uh thank you uh for telling us about class action park Oh, Sarah Mays, thank yeah. you. Thank you <laughs> for the gift of letting me watch Class Action Park because I do not have HBO Max. You gifted it to me. And for 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 letting me come down, you know, go down this memory lane with you. Our guest today is Jaylen Scott. She is the executive director of the Lavender Rights Project. Jaylen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. And I wanted to say a little more about Jaylen, who's one of my very favorite people. Jaylen and I have been friends for many years. Jaylen moved to the Pacific Northwest from Denver, Colorado, to serve as minister and director of a Unitarian Universalist education program. In her previous career, she has worked as a director of human resources operations and education. She regularly preached and facilitated workshops on justice and mindfulness in her previous career as a minister and religious educator. She is passionate about queer and trans liberation, sacred practices for self-care, decolonized labor practices, and mindfulness in the workplace. And I have had the pleasure and privilege of hearing and experiencing Jalen's preaching more than once, and it is life-giving. I am so happy you are with us today, Jalen. That is very kind. We usually do a how you doing corner, and I feel like how I'm doing is thinking that we need to now have what um, I was talking about with Unitarian Universalists is that there was a huge movement to support marriage equality, and it happened. When I was a child, I heard how impossible marriage equality was going to be and how impossible. And guess what? It's possible. When a group of people put their mind to transforming a system and changing something, it happened in our lifetime. And so there is no reason why we cannot abolish the police state and transform our justice system because the system's working the way it was designed and it's fucking bullshit. You know, I think I left ministry um, because I no longer had a message of hope. I don't um, at this moment. And you know, it's, there's a numbness, I think, that goes along with, um, that I'm tired of saying that I'm numb. You know, it's the sick and tired of being sick and tired, sick and tired of saying I'm numb, you know, and tired of being numb. And this numbness, you know, along with it comes guilt uh, of being in social isolation because of my own medical vulnerability. And there's some guilt about being my age and, you know, 43 in a couple of days and not being out on the front lines and not having done enough during um, uh, Ferguson, uh, not having done enough. And I think there's something about the institution or the system that um, is putting numbness and guilt on the Black body so that we move into a place of um, despair and inaction. And I just I just have to say that's where I am. You know, it's working um, on me because I don't, it's just hard for me to see hope. And in the, in the example that you spoke about Asia, 
they were white folks that were of concern. That's the major difference. And if you don't see our humanity, there is no progress that's going to happen. And they just don't. And it's true for black men. Uh, it's true for uh, black women. And it's especially true for black trans women. We are not human in the eyes of the law or whiteness or safety or ethics or any, any of it. And so, yeah, there could be quick progress if you actually think someone's a human being. Can you tell us more about the Lavender Rights Project? Because um, for folks that have never heard of it, it, it connects very much with what you're talking about centering Black trans women, right? Yeah, I think um, I recently arrived at Lavender Rights Project and, I, and its mission, as with um, liberal-leaning, left radical nonprofit organizations, we have in our mission a centering of um, Black, Indigenous, POC, queer, and trans people. Um, what that meant or means in practice is something completely different, but I think part of the reason why um, the board of directors voted me in and um, that I was invited in to do some transformation in the organization is the commitment, you know, it says a lot to, about the people in the organization that they have a commitment to actually figuring out what that actually looks like. And so Lavender Rights Project provides legal services. We started doing law for low-income folk in general, mostly white, um, historically, to be honest, on a sliding scale or free based on whatever funding that we had. We've since expanded to do fee-for-service at full rates and also low-income and free, and the fee-for-service subsidize is the low-income. We do um, direct legal services. We're different than a lot of legal organizations like um, Transgender Gender Law Center, um, ACLU, HRC, other queer and trans organizations that have a law department, in that we are committed to and, and our mission is specifically to serve individuals and to do representation for individuals versus larger policy initiatives. We do participate in policy initiatives, um, but that's not the, the core focus of our work. And so we do family law um, that is mostly where our full fee-for-service comes from, employment law, benefits, uh, so appeals on health benefits and et cetera for trans and gender non-conforming uh, non-binary people, and unemployment um, benefits also is a significant part of the work we do. I feel like I'm missing one, but um, in general... It sounds like a lot. Yeah. Uh, and is that uh, just limited to Washington State? At the moment, we are focused on Washington State. We do have and have handled federal cases, but we are uh, focused on uh, residents of Washington State. We had, I think, initially been in Seattle and have grown since. We've moved from about um, five employees a couple of years ago to 12, um, many more attorneys, and tripled our budget in, in the last two years. So we're figuring out how to expand our services to rural areas in Washington State. Um, also, we just opened a second office in Tacoma. Um, given COVID, that's sort of on pause, but we are expanding out our services throughout the state of Washington. Jaylen, how do folks find the Lavender Rights Project, and do you all do outreach with, um, or how do you do outreach, and how do folks who need your services find you? Yeah, so um, the second aspect of what we do is uh, programming, um, which is a big part in sort of my area. I must say I'm not an attorney, but I work with a bunch of attorneys, and they are quite fun. <laughs> but they, um, um, the second aspect of the work we do is um, going out and teaching people about the law, so legal education. Um, and also assistance in completing estate planning. That was the one I was missing, doing estate planning documents, wills, powers of, of attorney, and et cetera, especially right now during COVID. That's been a real need in the community. And um, specifically with queer and trans people, there are special areas of access um, and access to bodies, um, the names and the gender on death certificates, and et cetera, that we do know um, how to make sure that your uh, wishes at the moment of death and when you're in the hospital and et cetera are fulfilled. We also uh, do clinics for name changes uh, and gender marker, uh, both on state and federal documents. 
for folk, um, and that is in our community and online right now. You can find us at lavenderrightsproject.org. Um, we'll be at Pride holding a name change clinic. Um, and we'll also be doing something during Trans Pride, I believe, holding also a name change clinic. And we often offer uh, workshops, legal education workshops for free um, online. You can find out about all of that um, from our website. The one area I want to come back to, you asked about the centering of Black trans folk. Um, we just started in an effort to figure out the center part of our mission, this Black Trans Task Force, which is composed of six uh, Black, trans, femme, and non-binary femme identified folks looking at the problem of violence against Black trans people in general, and especially Black trans femmes. We're dedicating a lot of our resources, time and effort, and programming to this particular project and really working through the Transgender Law Center. Um, they put out a trans agenda for liberation. Check out their website, Transgender Law Center, Trans Agenda for Liberation. And it specifically talks about sort of the hierarchy of needs, right, for Black trans people and how to protect them. And one of those is um, providing, or at least the first, is uh, Black trans women, Black trans femmes, leading and living fiercely. And that's the one we're focused on, putting Black people in leadership, which is me in the ED position, um, putting those six trans folk and non-binary folk um, in positions of leadership at Lavender Rice Project, and then living fiercely. We're starting to work on a, um, a project looking at homelessness in the um, county and uh, city of Seattle, uh, particularly transitional housing and emergency housing for Black trans people. Is there something you're not doing? You have either a goal or a wish that um, was out there or, or that Lavender Rights Project could do, if not another um, agency to center Black trans uh, women and non-binary folks? Organizationally, we're looking at our HR policies and practices um, and at the entire structure of our organization and figuring out what does it look like to center the trans agenda for liberation, specifically center the needs of Black trans people and how we administer human resources. That includes disability justice, um, it includes making sure that folks have a good salary, includes making sure we have the right people in leadership, and that the way that we are administering traditional HR things like so-called discipline or whatever actually is following the epistemology and needs of uh, Black trans people, what their real needs are. Um, so organizationally, I think that's one one shift that we're trying to make is figuring out how can we, at a core before we start reaching out, do the centering inside the organization. I think externally, we're growing our direct services for Black trans people. And what we really want to do is not only look at this hierarchy of needs and um, advocacy for um, housing and housing rights and shelters and transitional homes, we do need to start doing some representation of more Black trans people. So in the instance of Nina Pop, right, in Missouri, it's it's in Missouri, but if this happened in Washington state, you know, a black trans woman stabbed to death, what does it look like to get justice for that person? And what does it look like for our organization to be the people that stand behind them, right? To, in representation and ensuring that we get accountability for, on all parts. Like, was the police response right? Is there some accountability that needs to happen there? Was there protection in the community? Is there accountability that happens there? And then what was happening with uh, uh, intimate partner violence and et cetera in that situation? Is there some work that we could be doing in that instance? So some direct work with violence in addition to the indirect work that we're doing in regards to violence against Black trans women is some things I, I, I have somewhere in my mind that that we need to start working on. Uh, it sounds like you're looking at prevention and protection. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And uh, in our, you know, uh, typical police state response, um, the American tradition has been to uh, look to law enforcement for um, protection and prevention. Um, wh what as an alternative are you contemplating? The Lavender Rights Project can be involved in. Yeah, I think it's you know it's obvious to us and probably most people listening to the show that the traditional sort of victim of crime, you know, Ronald Reagan policy stuff, looking at um, essentially you know centering white women narratives in crime victim advocacy, 
which then pushes a, you know, criminalization of the black body and an increase in mass incarceration approach is absolutely not where we want to go. And it is true, you know, and I, I'm a little reluctant to even, even say it in the circle because it need not be named, but oftentimes the intimate partner violence comes from those that look like us, um, particularly with black trans fans. But that's not our focus because that's not like the core of the problem. The problem is like, did that person who was killed, murdered, attacked, right? Did they have income that kept them from taking risks, right? In the work that they were doing, right? And not to say that all of us, you know, who are being killed and attacked were sex workers and sex work is real work and good work, but like, were they able to actually work with dignity and have their work respected by, by the government and also have some protections around that also, right? Were they um, um, able to get other types of employment? Was their housing secure and safe? Were they able to put safety mechanisms in place to protect themselves? All of these external and social factors that impact and contribute to the situation where the actual act of violence happens is where our focus is. And the, at the point of death and murder and the law enforcement taking over, They'll do whatever they need to do, and they'll probably overly criminalize um, the, the person. But that's not the focus. We're focused on Black trans fans. We're focused on the person who needs protection and making sure that they actually have a place to go, making sure that they have care and health care in their lives and that they have access to health care, making sure they have the right to say who they are and state what their name is and what their identity is and have the proper documentation to do that and making sure they're free from police violence and also violence from others. And so um, that, that particular is our focus area. And I don't know if I hit your question, there was an additional question. Well, it's more that looking at the, the role of Lavender Rights Project, um, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, especially interested in this with you as the incoming ED, um, that uh, you said the organization hasn't so much been um, in uh, focused on policy itself, which you know, I take to mean, you know, lobbying, for example, or large scale court cases, you know, like the, the employment law That's right. choices before the, the Supreme Court. Um, so if, if policy isn't so much the focus, are you then uh, more likely to take um, a, a litigation approach to these particular concerns or is it more of a public awareness approach? Yeah, I think both. And so I think we separate the Black Trans Task Force from the legal arm of Lavender Rights Project. And they both can't, they both feed each other, right? Mm -hmm. And so the task force itself is looking at uh, policy. Um, At the moment, they're focused on housing, trying to, you know, remedy an emergency, put a fire out. Uh, That's with policy with King County, uh, with the city of Seattle, um, and et cetera. And so there's, there's, there's that one aspect. It also um, might look like, you know, what does it mean to add a, a new class, right, to the Violence Against Women's Act that actually specifically defines, uh, defines uh, trans women? That's a little tricky because that starts getting into criminalization of, of Black bodies. But there, we are looking and researching and having discussions about what a larger advocacy looks like. But then there's a second part, which is any of those cases in our interactions, so people call us and say, hey, I'm Black and trans, I need help with XYZ. And we either refer out or, and we take notes and we figure out this is a policy thing that needs to happen. We can work on this or et cetera, or they have a case right now. And then we refer that case over to our general legal. And that could look like if it's employment, absolutely, it could be litigation or some sort of mediation, which is more common with us, going into an organization, doing some mediation and protection for the employee, employee um, for that particular individual. We don't do criminal law at the moment, uh, but that's a piece that I think if we're going to address violence against uh, Black trans women, I'm not really sure. Maybe it's litigation in these cases in response to the violence. I am not sure what that looks like, but that's not an area of law that we cover right now. Um, but we do. Uh, can address some of the more some of the larger systemic issues with our family employment law and et cetera areas. Right. And so civil law helping people perhaps in um, you know, unhealthy marriages uh, that Absolutely. they need to extract themselves from or 
and DV cases, domestic violence cases, we can, protection orders and et cetera, mm -hmm. um, we can handle that. I think the question for us is how to get um, trust in the Black trans community so that they can start bringing the cases to us. Because even if we can't take it, we can find somebody who can take it. And, and, and we are more likely as an organization, we have the reputation of taking those hard cases that nobody wants to take because we also know that litigation isn't the only answer. It's not about us as a nonprofit getting money from the thing. It might be mediation. It might be referring to a social worker. There's a number of areas that we cover as a nonprofit that we're able to, if we're able to actually listen to people and accept them and welcome them into our services. It feels like a radical approach and it shouldn't be that we actually center the needs of the person and not the nonprofit making money. Because as we, I think the three of us have had the experience unfortunately, that in nonprofit spaces, it's about what's going to get us the grant money. So it is um, a relief. And I, and I, you know, knew that about the Lavender Project and hearing it spelled out is just um, affirming. And it feels like in a time where there doesn't feel like that much hope, it, it feels beautiful to know that the Lavender Rights Project is centering the needs of people. People are like, well, what can I do in my organization um, for Black trans folk? Um, and non-binary folk and they're like well maybe we can just hire a bunch of people but then you're hiring into an organization that's a mess right like instead of using the sort of diversity approach um go in and fix your organization and look at every single one of your policies and center our needs because if you center our needs we are at the bottom right of the social spectrum as far as how we're treated and seen and if you can get us up to the top, everyone's going to come along with us. So go ahead and say, what is it that this Black trans femme person that does has not had access to education, um, like I have, has not had access to, and this is not universally true, we have some pretty highly educated PhD folk, right, but in general has not had access, right, and does not have access, and has very specific healthcare needs, right, very specific and very specific needs for time off, for surgeries, for whatever. If we can set our entire policy so that this person can no, not have to come in and say, I need an exception, but that they are included in our current policy, you're going to be good. And you're going to attract folks there that need to be there. You know what I was thinking, Jalen, as you've been speaking, is how, what, in addition to those um, tangible, material, uh, crucial supports, how, is there attention being paid to your uh, spirit and your health and your care? Um, how do you center yourself and um, take care of yourself? Because it's a lot, right? The, the weight of the world on Black trans and Black trans femme women is enormous. And so how do you, is, that, is there space made for that within the institution? Yeah, I... You know, Aisha, you, you know some of my history with employers, and I've been calling it the mammification of Black trans folk, right? That they suck our tits dry, and they throw us in the kitchen to clean up their mess, right? Until we're exhausted and our bodies worn out, right? And that has been my history with uh, nonprofits and employers. And uh, at some point, I... I can't rely on cis or white folk to do that for me anymore. And that, and that sort of realization, it seems obvious, but I really just had trust that people would take care of me and my body. And that's just not true. You know, it's, um, you know, it, yeah, I am a tool in many ways in these organizations, uh, either a tool to, uh, brag about their diversity and inclusivity or a tool because I have the skill set like many trans folks do to go in and manage and fix chaos. And they will, and, and also because we are a dedicated people and a passionate people, right? They're willing to exhaust, exhaust this passion. And so at some point, you know, I think it was recent over the last year, I just got some boundaries. I mean, like I got boundaries and I had heard about boundaries <laughs> for 20 years 
It was rumored to be out there. It was rumored to be out there. But they're real. And they're real. And it's like, okay, you know what? Seven o'clock. I'm tired. I'm sorry. No. Or, you know what? You created this mess. You get in the kitchen and clean it up. I'm not doing it. I'm just not. And also, you have hurt me. You have been racist to me. You and, and it happens on the daily in all places. Also at this organization, it's happened. And so, you know what? I'm not going to put it on you to, to, to fix my body. You need to go and fix your shit. But I'm going to go to my family. I'm going to go to the Black Trans Task Force. I'm going to go to my partner. I'm going to go to my spirituality and my ancestors and get strength. That's where my, that's where my help comes from. You know, my help don't come from, you know, organizations, institutions, and white people. My help comes from the Lord, who is my ancestors and my queer and trans family. And we will include in the show notes a link to um, the Black Trans Task Force uh, Facebook page. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so we have um, Facebook page and Twitter, um, and uh, we just got ourselves on social media. I think we just got our initiatives going, but we're rolling. Um, We do also have just very little direct service funds for people who are in trouble. So if any black trans folk, you know, are in trouble, just have them contact us. And if we can't help, we can try to find someone to help them. Um, You can do that through our Facebook, Twitter uh, page or Instagram. What is the address? You can find us on Twitter at WA black trans TF and the same WA black trans TF on Instagram. So, Coming into uh, this new leadership position, what does leadership look like for you? You know, without throwing the baby, what's the phrase, the baby out with the bathwater, I think we do need to do some work around um, what is professionalism, what is leadership, and, you know, thinking about um, how many of the things we name as leadership come from patriarchy and white supremacy particularly really, really a lot of patriarchy. So in, in some ways I'm allergic to the word, but it also, you know, needs to be contemplated in an absence of a better word. I think, um, um, we have to, we have to address it. I, for me, what I'm noticing, I, I can't say I've been intentional about it ever, um, in positions of leadership. Um, but I think I've been reflective of what my style is. And, you know, I talked about sort of this word I made up or somebody made up the mammification of blackness. Mm-hmm. Well, there is also a mothering quality, I think, to, to how I operate um, in positions of leadership. And I think I get this from my own mother um, who lives in Mississippi and has for a long time been in um, leadership positions in um, chicken plants. Um, and so over black and brown uh, folks who work on the lines in chicken plants, and she's been in a position of power in those in those places, and sort of the go between between the the white you know executives and those folk. And you know, we were talking about she's thinking of retiring, and there's COVID right now, and there's you know issues at the plant, the person immediately under her is sick with COVID and in the hospital and not doing well. And that's the person she was training to go into the position. And she was like, I don't think I can retire because he's the only one that I trusted to treat these black and brown people well. Mm. And that has been her, you know, success and leadership is that she has been mama hen. She has taken care of them. She's made sure that whatever the the uh, corporation needed right as far as productivity and outcomes and rules and regulations were followed. I mean, she's quality assurance, so she's she's very clear on like you know like following certain parameters. But in the midst of that, that it didn't harm the bodies of those people is was her leadership style for you know thirty years, and that's what I've learned, and that's what I've grown up with. I am very task and policy oriented. To you know, to, to my detriment sometimes, and in a very annoying way, I think for folk um, because I geek out on it, but not at the expense of bodies, not the, at the expense of employees at all, none of them. And so, 
my leadership style is to balance, like, what does it look like to hold institutional norms, right, and also caretake for the people who um, might be under my um, watchful eye. Did you grow up in Mississippi? I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how did you uh, well, literally migrate uh, from growing up in uh, Mississippi with a, a mother working at a, a chicken processing plant to Seattle and uh, getting involved in nonprofit work? I mean, it's a long and winding story. Some of it has to do with internalized um, anti-blackness. Some of it has to do with transphobia and interactions within my own culture and community and um, moving through and around and to different spaces, running from, you know, a, um, a, a queer phobia and a transphobia, running to something that seemed ideal because it was aligned with um, what we value in the society and whiteness and et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, that, that sh- eventually I've come back around back to, you know, ancestors and blackness and my own spirit, but it's a, you know, it's a long winding story through multiple States and many different positions and different nonprofit sectors and spiritual communities and et cetera. I left in 1995. I went back for a couple of years to finish my degree but since then, I've mostly lived, you know, East, West Coast, Atlanta, San Francisco, et cetera. And then here, um, I pursued the path of spirituality, which I think was my lead out of Mississippi. So moving on to uh, Colorado at a Buddhist retreat center called Shambhala Mountain Center. At the time, I think that was the big sort of like huge move for me. I was a flight attendant before then, so I did a lot of moving, but um, really chasing spirit. And that led me to Unitarian Universalism um, and working in religious education, um, which got me to Washington State. And then I got tired of Unitarian Universalism for reasons that are a whole nother three or four podcasts. Yep. <laughs> if you could go back and speak to yourself about 20 years ago or so, what might you tell yourself uh, what advice might you give yourself that you think might be helpful? You know, I, I've been doing a lot of reflection. I think when 40 hit, it was hard. Um, and it was, you know, maybe it's early, maybe it's right on, on, on point for a midlife crisis, but I think that's what happened. A lot of it had to do with, I had not fully transitioned at that point, And I, became aware of a limited amount of time in to in which to live my life fully and but it also was accompanied by just deep reflection on previous years that are that that has gone on for a couple of a few years and it's interesting to look at where i am right now what i'm doing at this moment and how each job, each mistake, each love, um, each of these things. I mean, it sounds cliche and um, hokey, but each of these things contributed to my ability to do the position that I'm doing now. And I can relate to, you know, the low income um, clients that we work with. I can relate to the trans community um, that's white, right? Because of my, you know, time in white queer community. I understand the problem of um, uh, patriarchal human resources because of my experience there. And the role of um, the spirit or caretaking and self-care because of my ministerial work, right? Uh, All of that has come together in a really cohesive and interesting way. It would be, I'd be curious to show myself it, you know, 20 years ago and say, yeah, like the path's going to suck. You know, it'll also be really exciting and you're going to make some huge mistakes and be really stupid. But right in the end, it's going to work. It's fine. You're doing everything that you're going to make, all the decisions you make over the next 20 years. You're right. You're, you're on track. You're right on path. That's awesome. What kind of city we do like to see Seattle become? I don't think I have hopes for the city. Um, it's not that I'm hope, hopeless, but it's just not, um, 
you know, I live outside the limits. Our organization is, of course, in the city limits. Maybe if you ask me about Tacoma. Or, okay, what kind of city or, would you like to see t- Tacoma become? We're, we're by the South, sound. <laughs> or, South, or South King County. Yeah. Well, I, would, I would like to see um, communities of resilience and care that are led by and are mostly composed of uh, people who identify um, as I do and are like me, which is Black trans, Black um, non-binary people who are at the center of these communities, um, who have access to land, healthcare, housing, um, and who can fight back with some uh, teeth uh, in the law, right, when um, shit ain't right. Well, I'm really grateful you joined us today, Jalen Scott, um, and best of luck in your new role at Lavender Rights Project. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Jalen, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for our guests? It means that we pay them. Every guest interviewed is paid an appearance fee. Is it normal for podcasts to pay their guests? No. People say all the time that our time is our most valuable commodity, and yet most guests on radio and podcasts aren't paid a dime for their appearances. Huh. Our show's supporters who donate on Patreon help us to pay our local guests, and in doing so, they're investing in our local community. Are there other ways our Patreon supporters can help us pay our local guests? Yes. By the Sound community members who sign up for the Discovery, Westlake, or Gasworks membership levels are able to designate their first one to two months donations to a particular local guest of their choosing. If we are able to get an interview with the person they've chosen, then that guest will receive the amount that was pledged for them in addition to our normal guest payment. This is a great way for fans of the podcast to help us choose our guest, create a platform for interesting local people to share their voices, and to reinvest in our own community. Nice! How do listeners get in on this deal? They can visit buythesound.net and click the donate button. That's buythesound.net. Or they can go directly to patreon.com slash by the sound. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash by the sound. So what are you grateful for this week, Aisha? I am grateful for um, the community that I have found not only in Seattle, which took a while. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Joma, who did um, lose her house to a fire this week. And um, she posted being grateful for the community that's reached out to her um, and Gabriel Teodros. Um, I'm grateful that there, when needed, people people come together. The people who, there are people who love liberation. I'm grateful for the trans community. Um, you, Jay Mace, the third, Jalen Scott, Lavender Project. I'm grateful for the people still centering liberation and not letting um, this shit rob that rob us of our joy. So I'm, I'm, I have a lot that I'm grateful for, even in the midst of watching this garbage death cult government. Did that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. What are you grateful for Sarah? Um, fresh air and mm-hmm. rain. Uh, we just came out of um, what was, I, I believe 11 days. Um, oh. Of Long time. unbreathable air outside. Um, the we've had wildfires on the west coast, as most people know. Um, and so I had to have my apartment windows closed. And like most other people here, um, I don't have air conditioning. So, um, and this has coincided with the beginning of school. So I've been trying to. Uh, get my kids online uh, to help them with remote learning in an in a small apartment where it's been 85 degrees and humid because we're all like little furnaces. And on top of all that, I just kept doing this idiotic thing of like cooking because it brings me joy. And because I, I dream up like wonderful things I want to cook and it often involves a lot of heat. And so I just kept being stupid and cooking and it just, uh, 
I'm glad that I can have my windows open and it's, we've had a couple of days of, of rain showers and the air is breathable again. And I never want to see sunshine again in the Pacific Northwest. I want rain all the time from now on. (laughs) Right. Hey, did you like my cinnamon rolls that I delivered to your house? We loved them. Thank you. Sweet treats will always be appreciated was a pleasure. I love you, Sarah. I love you too, Aisha. Thank you. I'm glad we're back. This has been By the Sound, your community-invested podcast. By the Sound is an Ahoy Hoy Media production. Ahoy Hoy!